recording. All right, everybody, we're going to open up in prayer, and we're going to go through Romans chapter 13 on behalf of the SUM Chapel. Hope everybody's doing good today on Memorial Day, and by God's grace, I'll be doing 14, 15, and 16 in the soon coming days and weeks. I might do it this week, might do it next week, we'll see. But either way, I have promised the SUM students that I will finish the book of Romans for them because uh, we started it in the school year and I want to finish it. If you want to shout out, go ahead and share your name and then I'll give you a shout out after I get done praying. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. We are celebrating in this country Memorial Day where we, where we remember the fallen soldiers of America's history. We ask you to be with the families and friends of those who have fallen uh, friends and family at this time. Comfort them and help us to appreciate the freedoms we have in America and bless our study through your word today. May we learn what you have, uh, have for us from Paul's teachings in Romans 13. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, well, many of you are probably busy starting to prepare to hang out with your friends and family, and I'm going to be busy teaching the Word of God. Amen. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. This is for SUM Chapel. Now, in our study in Romans, we've already gone through the great theological discussion that Paul had about salvation by faith and the chosen people of Israel now being uh, given uh, the chosen people of Israel now having the gospel given to them and being reject and rejecting it, now Gentiles are able to come in. And that's really where uh, the most of the, the bulk of Paul's time is spent. And then in Romans chapter 12, he goes to the practical things about renewing your mind, giving your body as a living sacrifice, being transformed in your behavior, which we learned last week in Romans 12, and appreciating the unity of the church and all of us having different gifts. And so now what we're going to do is just continue his thought into practical living. Starts here in verse 1. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Something to think about when we're going through this passage is um, an event in, in our history like the American Revolution. We rebelled against the authorities of England in the United Kingdom. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that kind of rebellion ungodly? During the time of the civil, uh, did I say civil war? I meant revolutionary war, sorry. Uh, but the civil war would be good to bring up at another point as well. But during our history, we had a revolutionary war against England. Now, when England was trying to get us not to do that, some of the things they would say is the scriptures of the Bible submit to your authority. And they actually had a king and they would use some of the scriptures of the Old Testament, especially like in Psalms, where it says, honor the king, you know, kiss the kiss the king's ring, you know, uh, come under submission to him, etc. They would try to use uh, scriptures with the culture of that time and say, follow the king and honor the government. Now we rebelled against them. And so were we violating, as American revolutionaries, were we violating this scripture? 
Well, one of the things that I want you to start to notice is the description of the government we are to submit to. Let's keep going. In verse 3, for rulers do not hold terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free of the one in authority? Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now let's think about this. Was the American Revolution wrong? according to Paul. I don't think so. And the reason why I don't think it's wrong is because Paul is clear here in this passage. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. That phrase right there teaches us that the kind of government we shouldn't rebel against is the kind of government that does not bear the sword for any reason. Rather, they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So if you are a part of a government that is punishing wrongdoing, they are God's servants and you should fully obey them and fully submit to them. But if they are not upholding righteousness, but are rather punishing right doers, you are not expected to submit to them and you can rebel against them because your conscience would be grieved to actually submit to their evil and to their wrongdoing. And so I believe this scripture is not taking away the choice that we might have to have a just war or to rebel. It's actually saying when you should rebel and when you shouldn't rebel. Now back to the American Revolution, was it right for them to rebel? Yes, they were being taxed without uh, representation. They were being treated unfairly. They were under the oppression of the English government, and they tried to work it out peacefully. And if you watch the HBO special on John Adams, you can learn a lot about what went on behind the scenes. Of course, it's partly fiction, but there's a lot of truth in there about how people like John Adams wanted war to be the last re recourse, to be the last thing that they would do. And after they tried to negotiate over and over and over again, and England would have nothing to do with it, they were forced, they were put in a position to rebel. That's also true of the Civil War. You know, um, the South breaking away from the North because they wanted to keep their slaves was not right to do. And we as Americans at that time, now when I say we, my family didn't come here to the early 1900s, okay? So I wasn't here for any of those things, the, uh, the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, but as an American citizen, I kind of speak as the general we there. So we as Americans 
had the right to fight even in the Civil War because when the South broke away for unrighteous reasons to continue to oppress the, the slaves, we were obligated to fight for what was right so that the slaves could be free. And how about today in modern times? Ought we to make sure that we fight our battles justly and to believe in a just war concept and to, to not submit to evil governments? Absolutely. And is there a time that maybe we submit for a season and then we pray for things to change and then round up to fight? Yes. So not everything's a war. There may be a time where we submit unjust to unjust laws like Christians are in China, but it wouldn't be against God's plan if we thought of war as an option for China at some point, if the Christians continually be oppressed, or in places like North Korea, war would be an option if they could rise up, or in other countries where the righteous are being oppressed. But where the government is good, and for the most part, it is not oppressing good people, but it is punishing the wrongdoer, the Bible says we should submit to them. Now, that would be fine and dandy, right, to take this as an interpretation if Paul was living in a great society. So some people kick back and go, Joe, how can you say those things as the, as the standard of how to interpret Romans? We only submit to good governments and we can resist bad governments when Paul himself is living in the Roman time, the Roman oppression, when they were a wicked and evil government. Well, I think there's a couple things that we need to note during this time. Number one, Rome was not necessarily being evil at this time to Christians. It seemed at this time, even to Paul, that the Romans were protecting them against the Jewish people who were trying to wrongly use their authority to kill the Christians. So at the time of writing this, Paul wouldn't have thought that Rome was a wicked government in the sense that it was punishing right doers. He would have thought that it was actually defending right doers, that it was the Jewish people that were trying to kill him and that the Roman people, the Roman government was actually defending him. So if you understand when Romans was written, it's a part of his life in the book of Acts. You know, I don't have the timeline in, timeline in front of me, and it's not easy for me to follow, uh, you know, to, to understand the history of the book of Acts unless I have that timeline. But we know that the book of Romans was written during the, the time of, of Paul's life being described in the book of Acts. We understand that the Jews were plotting to kill him, but he was actually appealing to Caesar to be protected from the Jews. So the first thing is, I don't think he would have saw at this time the Romans to be wicked by crossing that line over into oppressing the right doers. I actually think Paul trusted them to protect the right doers. It wasn't until Nero, right around the time where Paul is in jail in Rome to be protected by uh, the Romans. He's actually purposely there to be protected by the Romans from the Jews, because remember, they wanted to kill him. And if they would have released him to go back to the governors of Jerusalem and so forth, they were going to attack him on the road. And he appealed to Caesar that he might be brought to Caesar, basically 
to, uh, to Rome to be protected by the Roman government so the Jewish people couldn't kill him. Well, while he's there, as the book of Acts ends, Nero begins to freak out towards the growth of the church and change his approach towards Christians and starts to kill them. And history gives us somewhat of a reason that he blamed a fire on the Christians. And he began to see them as the reason why Rome was cursed and doing so bad. And then he actually, uh, under Nero's room, Rome, under Nero's rule of Rome and the Roman government, he starts to kill Christians. And uh, we believe that during that time, Paul was beheaded while he was in jail. But remember, at this time, Paul wouldn't have thought that. Now, some of them might say, well, after this, Christians start dying and they never really start taking up arms. It's really only after 300 years of persecution that, that they finally win the war of worldviews by dying and giving their life over and over and over again. And the emperor Constantine has a vision and converts. And so Rome was brought to its knees, not by war, not by rebellion from the Christians, but by living the life of a martyr. And so this might be the pacifist, again, argument to say, well, you know, why would we use excuses to go to war like, you know, um, England, you know, like in what they did to us and in other places, Joe, you're saying it's okay for civil war or for revolutionary war. And yet the Christians for, uh, you know, almost 300 years from Nero to Constantine suffered the worst kind of persecution and, and yet they never rose up to fight. Shouldn't we look to them as our, as our example? Because when they died, they actually multiplied. And by them giving their lives, they eventually um, became the majority and ruled the land during the time of Constantine and onward. And we can talk about the effects of what happened there in you know, the Christian government at a later time. But that would be what a pacifist would say. Well, let me answer that and say, not all times are we to pick up war, uh, pick up weapons for war. And so um, there is a time, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. For whatever reason, God did not put it in the church's heart during that time to begin to fight and to have a war. But that still doesn't mean that just war is not an option. It just means that the church, primarily in the Roman Empire, and you got to remember the church spread to other places other than the Roman Empire during those first 300 years, um, it, it didn't have the call to arms, and God did not speak to them to do that. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But it doesn't mean it couldn't have happened. And so we do not want to take the... Um, the pacifist point of view in all situations, just because during that time of early Christian history, they didn't use it as a reason to go to war because just war has always been a part of the moral code of Christians. It has always been something that we can do if, if, if the need is there and the call is there. Now, was it abused during the time of the church government in Rome, known as the Roman Catholic Church over time? Sure. But it's also been used for good. Think of the times that Christians have fought and it's brought about good. Using our American history as an example, when we fought the Civil War, that was for good. It was worth the sacrifice to free the slaves. And so there may not be a call to a just war every time we are being oppressed. 
but it doesn't mean it can't be uh, an option for us. And so I'll just leave it to you and your conscience to decide whether or not you believe in the, the theory of what we would call a just war, or if you believe in pacifism. And here's a good book to get, Views on War, Christian Views on War. I have that book. Um, let me see if I can get the book, Perspective, Different Perspectives on War, Views on War book. Here you go. Get War, Four Views, excuse me, War, Four Christian Views. And you can get this book right here. I have this book and I take the just war theory. And let's see if we can, can we look at this a little bit better here? Okay, it doesn't really tell us what are the four views. Let's see here. Four. Okay, here we go. Biblical non-resistance, Christian pacifism, just war, and preventative war. I believe in just war. And we don't have to go into all of those details, but that's for your further study. Let's continue on with what Paul is teaching. Romans chapter 13, verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now this opens up that bigger question again. When should we stop paying our taxes? When should we stop honoring? When should we stop uh, paying respect? How, um, for, how far does a wicked person need to go in our lives before we start rebelling against them and stop doing those things? The line is not drawn here, but we know that the parameters of Christian morality should give us a good idea to when we should move away from these kinds of things and, and practice what would be more passive resistance. Not paying respect, you know, not honoring the wicked, not, not uh, giving money to the government if they're going to keep doing wicked things with it. That is always a possibility. Uh, the slave doesn't always have to honor the, the wicked slave owner. They can run away like they did during the time of the uh, abolition movement and the Underground Railroad. So we are given parameters in morality of when the, uh, the line, if it's crossed, we could passively resist and then possibly build up to what we were talking about, a revolution or a just war. And how do we know that that's a possibility? Because once again, it says here in the context that we are to do these things for the authorities that are God's servants. Not, I don't believe we can say that people doing wicked things in our lives are God's servants. Now, somebody might bring up, you know, an example where God says like King Cyrus was his servant. But you see, him enacting judgment and punishment to the people of God was actually a good thing. He was the, the spiritual spanking for, for Israel and for Jerusalem. And so um, we cannot say that 
that just because he wasn't Christian that he couldn't be God's servant in that way. That is true. He was God's servant because God was using him to bring about judgment, which was righteous. And we know that even people like like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in Babylon submitted to those rulers. Now, how is that possible? That's because they were not doing wickedness to the people of God. You, you, you remember in the story that the, the people, uh, um, the fellow governors actually out of jealousy had to trick at that time Nebuchadnezzar to turn on uh, Daniel and his friends, right? That they actually had to do tricks. They had to, you know, to do things to them to, to turn their favor against them because they were being favored. And so that means it was only when they started acting wickedly toward the people of God that they could have been resisted and so forth. And uh, let me get the name of the king of, um, because you know, the rulership changed while Daniel was in the lions. Uh, Daniel was in Babylon. The rulership changed. Daniel in the lion's den. Who was that ruler? I said it was Nebuchadnezzar, but it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, was it? It was Darius. See, it went from the Babylonians to the Medes and then to the Persians. Okay, so I just want to make sure I shared that story correctly. But you notice that the fellow governors of that time had to trick Darius, rather, not Nebuchadnezzar, had to trick Darius to turn against Daniel because God was using their occupation. Um, God was using Babylon's occupation of Israel and their rulership over the people of God as a righteous judgment. It was actually a good thing. And so we got to be careful when we look at these stories and go, God's always cool with his people being mistreated. And so pacifism is the only way we can look at the scriptures and interpret passages like this. No, that's not true. Um, when God is using people to judge us, if we resist their judgment, we're actually resisting God. And if you remember that, that was actually the message during Ezekiel's time. Ezekiel was like, what should I tell the people? And God was, and, and same thing with Jeremiah, but specifically for Ezekiel, because Jeremiah came before Ezekiel. Ezekiel's, you know, they're already in captivity. Jeremiah's, uh, uh, you know, around before the captivity. And then when it comes, that's where his book is at. Lamentations is the one afterward. But Ezekiel is, is writing after they're in captivity and all that. And God is telling them, telling Ezekiel to tell them, you need to submit. You need to stay here. You need to be at peace with this. You need to build houses. You need to occupy now as an, you need to occupy this land as an oppressed people. You need to be cool with it. In other words, now, as we go on in history, during the Maccabean revolt, that's during the 400-year uh, time of silence uh, between covenants, there was a time that God used those, those Maccabean men to revolt against the, uh, the Greek occupation and to obtain a certain amount of freedom. And that's why uh, now Purim, not Purim, um, uh, uh, Hanukkah is celebrated, Hanukkah is now celebrated as a reminder of the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which I believe the Seleucid Empire was a part of uh, the Greek Empire here, that it was a remaining portion of the Greek Empire. Now, of course, I'm getting a little bit <clears throat> out, of my, out of my realm of expertise. The Seleucid Empire 
Ancient Greek was a Hellenistic state ruled by the Seleucid dynasty, which existed from this time. And uh, it came about from Alexander the Great. Okay, so I did pretty good guessing there, right? Okay, so let me go back to summarizing uh, basically the first seven verses here of uh, Romans chapter 13. Let Let me summarize it here for you, please. The Bible teaches us to submit to governing authorities as long as they are doing the will of God by punishing wrongdoers. When the governing authorities are punishing rightdoers instead of wrongdoers, just war is an option. Also, we can do peaceful or passive resistance against people when they are oppressing us by not paying our taxes, by not honoring them, and not giving them respect. That happened during the time of the Civil Rights Movement, and it was also a part of the American Revolution where we stopped honoring them first and stopped giving our money to their tax system and started using that as a way to negotiate and bring about change before war. Okay, and so the the passage there is not teaching pacifism. It's teaching us how to properly submit to good government. And as I took on the arguments of pacifism, some people might say, well, you know, Paul couldn't have been saying that because at the time he's writing that, he's under Roman occupation. But remember, during that specific time, he was actually using Rome to protect him. He actually thought Rome was good for that sense of giving Christians freedom. So the history shows us otherwise. He wanted to go to Caesar. He wanted to be in Roman custody to be protected from the Jews. And then lastly, if people go, well, after that in Christian history, the, from Nero to Constantine, people suffered and they never fought back. That's how we should be. That is true, but that doesn't show that just war was not an option for them. It just means that God did not give them as a church, as a people group to do it. God blessed them under their oppression, and God can do that anytime he wants to. But just because God blessed an oppressed people group like the Christians during that time doesn't mean that just war is never an option. And I believe I use the example to show that just war is an option during times like the American Revolution and the Civil War, as well as not paying taxes to oppressive regimes and not honoring wicked slave masters, that it's time for a slave to run away and hide. And even if we went to the slave discussion and people brought up the scriptures in the new testament where it talks about slaves obeying their masters that was talking about masters that treated their slaves as jesus treated them in ephesians it says now you slave masters remember you and the slave have the same master so whatever was going on in their slave uh Uh, with their slaves at that time, it could not be beating and it could not be stealing people to have as slaves. They were more like indentured servants. And so if you have questions, go ahead and write that out under this post, because I know many of you are celebrating and getting ready to celebrate Memorial Day. But if you have questions about that, let me know, because I have preached on uh, slavery as well in the Bible and shown that it was nothing like the American slave trade or the Islamic slave trade or the sex slave trade. It was more of a debtor, uh, a debtor's um, um, jail or paying off your debts or being a war prisoner, etc. Okay, now, Paul then shifts to making love the fulfillment of the law. So he gave us some practicals on how to live in a government that's righteous and doing the right thing. And now he's going to tell us basically how to do the right thing in all that we do. Verse 8 and onward. 
let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now notice this because this goes all the way back to Romans chapter 1 and 2. Remember I made the argument that the law that Paul primarily is referring to the entire time that applies to Jew and Gentile is the conscience of the moral law. It's the conscience of the moral law. It's not like the uh, the non-Jew would have known not to mix two cloths together and that the law of not mixing two cloths together was written on their heart or that they would have known not to eat pork or so forth. No, the law that was written on their heart, and let me just show that to you because I made that case back in the early part of Romans. Let's just go to say um, Romans chapter one. Let's go here uh, to the end you know, towards the middle end here in verse uh, chapter one, verse 20, it says, uh, even, <clears throat> excuse me, pagans, non-Israelites are without excuse being understood for, uh, excuse me, they are without excuse for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, why are they without excuse? Because keep going on here, keep going on. It's going to say now into chapter 2 that they know the law. And it's going to be right here, um, uh, let's say, verse 12. It says, all who sin apart from the law also will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but it, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Keep going. Verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, at other times even defending them. And so I made the argument as we went through this section, what is the law? Could it be the 613 laws that Moses received? No, it couldn't be that because it says that they show by their actions that the law is written on their hearts and their conscience. Well, what law is written on their conscience? It's the moral law. It's the very law that now Paul is going to make mention of when he says, when you love others, you fulfill the law. And that is the same law that goes from the old covenant to the new covenant. That's why when Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, known as the Beatitudes, onwards throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching all the moral laws that are not going to change. Those things remain the same. Why? Because they reflect the character of God. So it says, the commandments you shall not murder, or excuse me, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And he says, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. What law? The law that God gives us to our conscience about morality. So we had it written down in the Ten Commandments, but the conscience bears witness to it. 
Now remember, one of the Ten Commandments is not a moral law. That's the law to obey, obey and keep the Sabbath. So nine out of the ten of the, of the Ten Commandments are moral laws that continue for us today. And Paul is saying in the New Covenant, if you want to summarize all of these moral laws, it's going to be summarized as loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you put the first law before that, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you won't violate anything with God in moral behavior. You won't put any idols before him. You won't take his name in vain. All of those laws that pertain to our love and worship of him. And then if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't steal, you won't lie, you won't commit adultery, so forth and so on. You won't covet. And that's why Jesus taught that the two greatest laws, uh, that all the law is summarized in the two greatest commands, love God and love people. And that's why right here, if you look at uh, the bottom um, left-hand corner, you can see loving God and loving people is the vision of our church. And then now Paul moves on to conclude chapter 13 by talking about the coming of the Lord and how his coming is near. It says, and do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And there you can see how he ends the chapter. Now, doesn't Paul have a consistent way of explaining the life of a Christian? He sure does. Here he teaches us that it's our responsibility to wake up from our slumber. If we remember, we got into this conversation in Romans 8 and 9 about Calvinism. And Calvinism teaches that it's God's choice to whether or not you will be saved. Where we as Arminians, non-Calvinists, Wesleyans believe that it's God's choice to give us a choice to be saved or to be lost. And here Paul teaches us once again, it is our choice. Notice that he says you're supposed to look around at the time and realize that his coming is near and that you are to wake up from your slumber. Now I have here uh, from the ESV page a Bible study on this idea of waking up from your slumber. Look at the concept of waking up from your slumber. He, Paul uses this in Ephesians, and he says, Wake up, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This idea came from the prophets. That's where Paul's getting it. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of the staggering. So wake yourself up. Now watch here, Isaiah 52, 1. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised, excuse me, 
and the unclean. And once again, from where Paul got the passage in Ephesians, Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, if you notice in every one of these scriptures, we have two in the New Testament, Ephesians and Romans, and Ephesians borrows from the prophet Isaiah, but we have two in the New Testament, and then we have three in the Old Testament, three coming from Isaiah, this concept of awaking for a total of five, we are clearly shown that it is our choice to whether or not we get up or we stay sleeping. Now, let me also tell you why I am an Arminian and why I am not like a traditionalist like Leighton Flowers or others like Jesse Morale who don't believe in original sin or pervenient grace. Because if you notice, you have in each one of these contexts a person calling out to the sleeper to wake up. Then they are to hear that call and after hearing that call, make the choice to whether they will get up. So let's just take it from practical everyday living. Okay, from everyday living, when you are sleeping, how are you going to wake up at a certain time? Let's say you don't have an alarm. Let's say those don't exist. Let's say you need to get up at three in the morning uh, because you got to start a journey, right? Well, If you are by yourself, you are not going to be able to wake yourself up at three. And so before they had alarms, somebody would be like, well, I'm going to stay up all night. I'm going to watch the stars and round about when I know it's this time of the night. I'll come and wake you up because if we're all sleeping, we're not going to know what time it is. We're not going to have any way of looking at the stars to know what time it is. Like, let's say that's, you know, Paul's generation or in our generation, uh, someone says, I'll set the alarm. One person says, I'll set the alarm and then I'm going to come wake the rest of you up. Okay. So in, in both scenarios, ancient times and in our times, if you wanted to wake up at a random hour, you would need somebody to come wake you up. Or let's say there was danger, Uh, the tent was on fire, or an enemy was coming, somebody was standing watch, and now an enemy is coming, and they're going to come alert you. Or in your house today, you know, uh, somebody's knocking at the door, and you're the parent, and the child hears the knocking, and it's going to come and get you. In all of those scenarios, when someone is coming to get you for whatever reason, When they come and initiate, listen to this, they initiate you to get up by calling out to you. It is now then your choice to whether or not you get up. Do you get that? Get up, mom. Somebody's at the door. It's mom's choice now if she gets up. She can say, tell them to come back later. I'm going to stay sleeping. Now you notice she would have never known that someone was at the door unless they came and told her. But now that they have come and told her, it is now her choice. So this is why we believe in the concept of prevenient grace, that God enables us to come to him by calling out to us through his word and giving us the opportunity to have faith and to receive his grace. God is doing this act out of his mercy. So nobody is waking themselves up, 
coming up with the idea to get up and then perform the actions. According to the scriptures that we have just read out of this ESV study portion here, the two in the New Testament and the three from the Old Testament, it is clear that someone is calling out to them. Wake up, wake yourself up, O Jerusalem, stand up, get up. You see, don't you get that? It's someone calling out to them, get up, wake yourself up, come on, get up. Watch the next one here. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion, get up. See, the person's calling out. Here's another one. Arise, come on, everybody arise. That's like a song, arise. Come on, put that to a song. For your light has come, right? And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Amen. So someone is calling out. You know, that's the concept here. And when you go here to the, uh, you know, to the Paul, you know, reciting this, it says it the same way. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And even notice how this squashes the Calvinism version of dead, meaning you can't respond. Like you're dead like Lazarus. No, you're not dead like Lazarus, needing Jesus to initiate and also complete uh, the call of salvation because you don't have a choice. He's like bringing you out, you know, by force or by his irresistible grace. No, dead in the sense like prodigal son, like you're separated from God. You're not dead like Lazarus, unable to respond. You're dead like Lazarus, and that's like being asleep. And so when you hear the voice of someone calling you out of your sin, it's your choice now to whether or not you awake yourself uh, fully and get up out of bed and become conscious to what is going on. And that's what the prodigal son did. He, awo he awoken to his conscience of what he was doing wrong. He shook himself. He, he came to his senses. He awoke out of it and, ga and gave, um, he came back home and gave his life to the father. Now, somebody might say, well, no one was preaching to the prodigal son, you know? Well, he had already had the word given to him. He had already knew the law of God, so the Holy Spirit was working on him. Not every time does there need to literally be a preacher being the, the instrument of God's grace. As long as you've heard the word and you have the understanding, God can awaken your conscience with it. God can use the Holy Spirit to do that. And now as we go here to the passage in Romans, it's the same exact concept. Do you not see it? It says the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Wake up. Paul is the one now waking you up. The hour's come. Come on, church. Wake up from your slumber. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Well, who's telling us that? The guy who's actually been up. Like, you know, in this example, it's it's spiritually up. So Paul is now awoke. He's woke, you know, and he's now saying to these guys, guys, get up. Don't you see? Look, look outside the tent. The day, uh, the night's almost over. The day is coming. And then he tells them to do these things. It's their choice. God made the choice to give you a choice. God is not going to make you saved or make you lost. God made you a free will agent to determine for yourself what you're going to do. 
What are you going to do? Are you going to follow the light of your conscience by the Holy Spirit and the, and the word of God and come to salvation and do these things or are you not? And if you don't, you can't blame God for going to hell. The Calvinists would have to be able to, you know, to blame God. Well, I went to hell because you made me this way. You never gave me a real choice. You overlooked me. You didn't give me irresistible grace, but you gave it to my friend. And that's why he or she is going to heaven is because you irresistibly drew them and you didn't draw me. You left me to my my own sin. You didn't awaken me. You didn't change me. That's what the Calvinists could say on judgment for going to hell, that it was really God's fault that the trigger was pulled. I was just the gun. Now I'm guilty of murder, but who's the one that pulled the trigger? It was God. But for us, the non-Calvinists, it's clear. It's our responsibility. So it says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's your choice today. Do you want to stay in darkness or light? And even as a Christian, do you want to awaken to the things of God every day or do you want to backslide to the things of darkness? And then in verse 13, it says, let us behave decently. That's your choice. As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, you know, acting wild, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. All of those things are sinful. Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Now this is where I wish of course I could be with the chapel live with you guys because isn't this the Christian message, the Christian perfection, entire sanctification put on Jesus. Holy put on Jesus. It's not like you only got on Jesus's shirt, but not his pants. Like, you know, you got the pants of a sinner on and the shirt of Jesus on. No, put on the entire robe of Christ. Let it cover every part of you. That's it's all or nothing, guys. Come on. And then the Bible says, do not think about, don't put your mind on gratifying the flesh that the desires the flesh have. And haven't we learned that throughout this study that the flesh isn't it, but it has desires just like your stomach gets hungry and desires food, your brain and your flesh can desire to sin. Now that you're born again, <clears throat> you are to count your body as a living sacrifice and you are not to give in to the flesh, but to live according to the spirit. Now this is your true Christian life is to offer your body as that living sacrifice, putting on Christ and living for him. And then what we'll get into, excuse me, Mute button finally worked there. Cool. And what we'll get into in the next coming um, uh, lessons is chapter 14 and 15, where it talks about how to uh, live in the gray areas of Christianity, the disputable matters, because not everything is going to be black and white. God didn't give us, you know, a, a hadith like he did with the Muslims or a um, what he did with the Jews. What is that book called? Oh, I, this is where I wish Pastor Jared was with me. In the, uh, the traditions of the Jews, where are those things found? Somebody's probably shouting at the podcast right now. Traditions of the Jews are found in the... the um, oh, Lord, help me. Traditions of the Jews are found in the... Traditions of the Jews are found in the, I want to say, it's not the Zohar. Why is my mind <clears throat> going blank on me? Oh, my goodness. I am now stuck here in this world, and I have to find it. 
Talmud. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I just got to laugh at myself. Oh, thank you, Lord. Did you get something out of today? I hope that you did. I know many of you are not watching me online. <laughs> you are doing whatever you're doing. But hopefully people will come back and listen to this as a podcast. And uh, uh, let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, you know me. I'm going to be faithful to finish the book of Romans and to put it out there uh, for you in the next coming days and weeks. Let's pray. Father, use us to honor the righteous governments you have put us as citizens in, no matter where we may be in time and history, help us to honor the righteous governments. And Lord, when they go astray, help us to find ways to bring them back to your path using all the different methods and means, including just war. And Lord, we also pray that we will live in love and that we will fulfill the moral law by loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then God, help us to stay awake and to wake up others spiritually from their spiritual slumber and to live in the light and to clothe ourselves with your son, Jesus Christ, and not gratify the flesh. May we please you in all that we do. Bless us this day in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Enjoy your day. God bless you.